Welcome to Five Things About. I'm Chris Hatzis. Five Things About is for you and your inner curious cat. The part of you that just loves to know what others know about inventions, ideas, people and places. You've heard the proverb, curiosity killed the cat. The rest of the proverb is, but satisfaction brought it back. So go on, knock yourself out and bring yourself back. Today we explore five things about the way we think about bodies. How do culture and society shape the way we understand our bodies? What do we perceive as beautiful? And how has this changed over time? What sort of meanings do we inscribe male and female bodies with? How do straight teeth work as a signifier of class? We take a sociological approach to understanding bodies with Dr Liz Dean from the School of Social and Political Sciences, Faculty of the Arts. She's being interviewed by Lauren Sanders, also from the SSPS. So today we're talking about perceptions of the body and how they've changed over time. Can you start us off with how the body has been conceived of throughout history? You could begin with people like Plato, who thought the body was a tomb, but much of contemporary feminist work on the body, history of the body, does tend to start with the philosopher Descartes, and particularly his well-known adage, I think, therefore I am, Mm. because that belonged to an idea of there was a um, disjunction between the mind and the body. And it set in play an extraordinary kind of stream of events throughout history in terms of the mind being able to be the controller of the body. And it created an idea and a set of ideas that, particularly with enlightenment, that there was this idea that rational thinking subjects would always be able to control what their bodies could do. And from that flowed a sequence of events like with modernity and colonisation, the way in which bodies became racialized and also the way in which gender manifested. So we see from this premise an attachment of two primary things, or three really, that men more generally within Western thought were the thinking subjects. They were the rational subjects, the people that could take up positions in culture. And women were tied to their bodies. In fact, what their bodies supposedly could do, i.e. women have ovaries, so subsequently all women would be somehow going to be having babies and it tied them to a more biological function. And because of their biology, therefore, they couldn't be thinking subjects. Corresponding with this was this idea that racialized subjects of the so-called colonies were also somehow more biologically given. And in fact, a way to understand that today is that we still hear football callers in our code of AFL talking about a touch of magic when a First Nations Australian footballer has an extremely good play. And that in itself is not problematic, but if you kind of know this history of racialised peoples being seen as inferior, less civilised and less civilisable, as in the history of First Nations Australian treatment, you get to sort of see that there's a kind of way in which they're seen as kind of just natural biological. They're just good at playing football. They've got eyes in the back of their heads. They can just pass off that handball like that. And it's actually, therefore, a little bit problematic. Do notions of what are natural and what are artificial still exist or have they become sort of increasingly blurred over time? We have so many different biotechnologies now and bioengineering capacities 
and you could think of anything from the possibility of xenotransplantation, so the use of a little bit of pig artery to assist a heart, which happens now. Again, if we think of the ways in which hearts work with the wireless hearts that are implanted. But it's never conflated, I don't think, because biology can refuse what technologies can do and as such therefore make demands on biotechnologies. That is, um, I will reject this hip that has been placed or I will accept it. But in order to accept this person has to take anti-rejection drugs for the rest of their lives. So it's a fascinating kind of co-implication. But there's also the idea too, I think, which has come out of biomedical notions that uh, Michel Foucault, the philosopher social theorist, talks about, wherein a biomedical model sets up this idea that bodies always must have replaceable parts. If it breaks down, it has to be fixed. So therefore, it can sort of set in stream, while not problematic in and of itself, this idea that anybody that doesn't sit within a normative framework, that doesn't look ideal or work in an ideal function or sit within a neat idea of two genders, suddenly becomes a body that needs to be fixed. It must be turned into that normative body, that ideal body. So in what ways do our physical bodies reflect that broader social body that you're talking about? Within changing perception of the body, we have had certain people think about the fact that the physical body is cultural as well as social and symbolic. So, for example, the very early anthropologist Marcel Mauss talked about the physical body in relation to cultural specificity and gave examples of, in World War One being fascinated with the fact that Australian and New Zealand soldiers could sit on their haunches, which the British couldn't do. And he said, what is that about some types of body? Why is that unavailable to British soldiers, why is it available to Australian New Zealand soldiers? It's a cultural specificity, he answers. When we're talking about the symbolic body, we have people like Mary Douglas and, in fact, to some degree, a social theorist called Norbert Elias who talks about the process of the civilising body where we learn disgust towards our bodily fluids. And this goes back to the Cartesian sort of split between the mind should be being able to control the body. We have historically or throughout time been very nervous about fluids, if you like, um, what the body expels. And we've turned them into sort of abject things that we must control. So mucus, sperm, sweat, all the things that bodies do every day became the things that had to be sort of hidden and forgotten and pushed away there as if our bodies were controllable, but also as if the bodies we're always fully containable, which is a bit mythical, actually. So Mary Douglas goes on and takes this a bit further and starts to talk about the body as overlapping with a cultural body in terms of the body becomes a site through which you start to see social order being played out. And if social order is not obliged, and that would be exemplified by initiation ceremonies, for example, or who you can look at if you're not related to them uh, within a particular culture, who you can marry. So there's various sort of rules tied to bodies and ages of bodies that, if broken, come to represent the possibility that 
the world will fall out of shape, that that social order will be disrupted. And so the body becomes sort of a parallel or inscribed through these forms of social order. And if they're disruptive, they're seen as matter out of place, something we have to cut off or get rid of or turn in another way. And I think another way to think about that in a contemporary society is the way territorially homeless people like asylum seekers or refugees have become the new abject, Mm. the thing they've been constructed politically through the media as bodies out of place, as disruptive to a particular social order with highly problematic results. But if they're pushed away, like moving our homeless off the streets of Melbourne recently into other areas, there's nothing new about this, but it's another way of sort of making certain bodies, the bodies of the homeless, the body of the homeless territorially, the refugee, the asylum seeker, as a real problem that somehow is disruptive to a particular social order. I was thinking when you were talking about leaky bodies as well, there's quite a bit of feminist work about how women's bodies are particularly not allowed to challenge boundaries. Could you talk a little bit about some of the theorists in that area? Again, it comes back to a critique of Descartes of that I think therefore I am or that the mind has control over the body and emotion. And women have always been placed historically within Western thought and within, say, for example, philosophy, psychoanalysis, have been placed as these leaky, fluid, boundaryless, unpredictable, uncertain beings who aren't rational thinking subjects. So some feminists thought that the philosopher psychoanalyst Lucy Gray, who speaks a lot about the fact that this is a kind of a metaphor for how Western thought has developed, but in fact why do we need to kind of continuously uphold this? In fact, it's irrelevant to today's world. And someone like Elizabeth Gross wrote a book on the body called Volatile Bodies, where she really highlights the fact that men and women have leaky bodies. And there's also the work that speaks back to this idea of unpredictability and uncertain and unstable bodies as anxiety-provoking for a broader society through uh, disability studies. And the work in particular I'm thinking of Margaret Schildrick, who really asks us to question what it is that worries the so-called able-bodied community by seeing a body that's differently abled and to stop sort of trying to normalise one type of body when there's so many diverse bodies. What is it about society that constantly wants to sort of promulgate the idea of various forms of body modification to normalise just a singular ideal of the body, which has often been male, white, slim, ageless, and so on. So do you think most people are even conscious that they're enacting or trying to approximate this so-called normative body, or it just happens in everyday life in different ways? Look, it's really interesting to think about this and and a way to respond might be through the actual empirical data that's collected on aesthetic cosmetic surgery. Certainly if you look at how in the last 10 years the rise in Britain, America, Australia, Korea in cosmetic surgery around normalising a certain body and Look, we're not passive victims of our media, that has to be said. We're always interacting with it. However, the force 
the social force as opposed to the force being with us. We're not impervious to it either. It's hard to get away from an idealised view of a body. And as a a woman who's ageing, I'm even shocked to see how I'm responding to some of it. Now, I haven't ran off and had rat poison put in my face and I've had (laughs) nothing done, but I can see what's at play there. And I'm really conscious. I've been reading and writing in this area for a long time. But I'm also conscious of how difficult it is to resist the possibility. So it goes back to your artificial biological conflation. It is incredibly normative now in the way that having your teeth strained, if you could afford to, is normative. And you can still see people who don't have their teeth straightened. You know that that's a class position. And the new class positioning, I think, in the future, because of the normativity of remaining young, is a question of finances because it's available and it's getting cheaper every day. So the media is incredibly powerful. How is that affecting women and men in terms of, you know, issues like body image? One of the ways to think about it is the way pornography has grown in time and particularly soft porn and its growth through various new forms of information, communication technologies, which means it's got a broader accessibility, if not appeal. We also have to remember that it relates to the growth of surgeons who can make more money doing cosmetic surgery. So there's a few different elements that inform what then becomes an industry which is encouraging young women in particular to have labia surgery, having their outer lips taken off. And what's extraordinary about this is they're becoming younger and younger. So my question when I've been reading this literature has always been, how do they know that their outer labia is a problem? Like, what are they seeing? What informs them that that's too big, too fat, too long? What's the normative principle? Unless they're having an enormous amounts of lesbian sex at 15, 18, how do they actually know it's a problem? What's giving them that problem? The response would seem to be the soft porn industry, which is informing them about a form of sexuality where we know it's all tucked in and nice and pink. But it's also the hairlessness, and this goes to both men and women. You know, we're worried about our forests being defoliated. And as a proud wearer of a 70s bush, I worry that there's no hair left amongst bodies, like that that it's suddenly becoming incredibly problematic. So Liz, just talking about the bush and reclaiming the bush, what I find a bit disturbing in society at the moment is that what is actually natural, so buddy hair, is seen as unnatural. How, how do you explain this phenomenon? I would explain that through consumption practices and the desire to sell products. It's too easy to blame simply the porn industry. I think we're also talking about economics. We're talking about marketing. We're talking about the Brazilian and the Brazilian or whatever it is, Gonzillion, I don't even know what it's called, um, for men, where we have implements that shave the back passage. We have implements that shave testicles. And that's about things to sell. So it's about late capitalism. And the body, in this sense, is the new terrain. The last thing I wanted to talk about was possibilities for resistance. I mean, this sounds pretty powerful, whether we're conscious of it or not. Can we ever escape it? And what does the future look like? 
I think I would always argue in the way that Foucault does and even Lucira Gray, they both talk about resistance is always part and parcel to social forces, that there's always what Ira Gray calls an excess. Foucault always says there's no such thing as power as a top-down, if you're thinking of the way the body is kind of totally reinscribed and sold to us as an image of normativity, of slim, youthful and so on. Resistance comes in many places, and if I think of the abjected body, if that's what we're going to call people who have no territory or nowhere to live in local and global ways, you're seeing forms of resistance in many ways, even in a really awful example of when refugees and asylum seekers were locked up in detention centres and were using their bodies, the only thing they saw as them having left, to sew up their lips, to make a public statement to get media attention, throwing their bodies on the wires of detention centres to say, I'm here, I exist, I'm a living, bleeding flesh. I think there's always forms of resistance. And also, too, with biotechnologies, if there's bioethics... There's also good things that are arriving out of this too. So how to predict the future. I do hear that body hair is back. So I'm back in fashion. If you stand still long enough, you're always become fashionable. So we can put away our chainsaws and start having foliage again. Thank you very much, Liz. <laughs> it's like a pleasure. That's five things about the way we think about bodies. Thanks to Dr Liz Dean and Lauren Sanders. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on the 18th of May 2017. Recording by Gavin Neighbour. Producers were Lauren Sanders, Andy Horvath and Arch Cuthbertson. The Five Things About podcast is a University of Melbourne training program created by Dr Andy Horvath. Still curious? Nip over to our other podcasts, Up Close and Eavesdrop on Experts, for more. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Five Things About.